0: You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Season 2. Well, hello there and welcome back to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Holthie, coming to you from the beautiful province of Alberta, Canada. In this episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast, I had a chance to catch up with Peter Rakai, who is an immigration lawyer practicing in Toronto. Um, Peter is, like many of the other guests that I have on the podcast, a specialist, a certified specialist in immigration law with the Law Society of Upper Canada, and just a really good guy. Peter jumped on the, the, the um, Skype call here with me um, just a, a few weeks back here from the date that I'm actually releasing this, and uh, he brought to the table... Um, some unbelievable knowledge and guidance about an area of immigration law, at least a category of permanent residence that has really been quite neglected, not even one that I've really considered to use very much. And I'm sure many of you as well who are listening to this podcast um, will probably not have had much experience with it. And that is the self-employed category. So in episode two, I talked with uh, with Carter Hoppe and we, we discussed the fact that at a federal level, the immigrant investor and entrepreneur categories were effectively shut down in 2011. Although it wasn't officially closed, they really weren't doing anything after 2011 and for political reasons and other things. And obviously if you 've listened to the, to to episode two of, of this season, uh, uh, Carter offered some unbelievable insight and background and and uh, a lot of just uh, explanation as to why things are the way they are with those programs in Canada and why they don 't exist well, uh, under the business class applications the self employed category is kind of that one little you know, a uh, redheaded stepchild, if you will, that's that's been kind of floating out there, um, that's still in existence, still available. And uh, Peter Rakai joined me to really talk about it. And as is the case with most of these um, episodes that I do, what Peter shares with us is practical knowledge and understanding about how it works and the types of individuals that can benefit from this type of a self-employed category as well as um, what you need to focus on and if you have any interaction with athletes you know elite athletes or um, musicians or you know uh, individuals that are going to bring significant cultural benefits to canada those are the type of self-employed people that are uh, are encompassed within this category, and so I'm going to, uh, without further ado, I'm going to jump to the podcast uh, that I did, uh, sorry, the interview that I did with Peter Rakai. All right, I am here with Peter Rakai, uh, an immigration lawyer, a specialist in immigration law, actually by uh, with the Law Society of Upper Canada, who has uh, agreed to to join me to talk about self-employed uh, permanent resident. Uh, options Welcome, Peter.
2: Hello, Mark, and thank you for having me on your show.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I think back to the first time that I, I saw you, Peter, and I think it was when you were doing an insight conference so they haven 't seen too many of those on immigration these days, but back in I think it was maybe two thousand and two or two thousand and three, you came out to calgary and and uh, the firm uh, gallings that I was with uh, allowed me as I was trying to figure this area of law out to go and, and pay to attend that and I think you were one of the first speakers that i that I ever heard uh, addressing immigration topics.
2: Well, that does go back a little while, I think, Mark, but uh, um, I'm I'm glad you hung on in the field even after hearing me.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I was really impressed and I thought, you know what? I want to be like that guy. He's, <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's got it all together. So uh, yeah, so thanks so much for, for coming and joining us. And yeah. um, Peter, I'll, I'll just share with the listeners a little bit of background on you and who you are and, and uh, you know, the, your practice. Um, Peter is a senior partner in Rakai LLP, which is a downtown Toronto firm of over 20 lawyers and paralegals, and you practice exclusively in the field of immigration law. Is that correct, Peter? That is correct. You bet. So over the past 27 years, Peter has represented individuals seeking entry into Canada, as well as employers in a variety of industry sectors. Um, now, in our discussions, Peter, you've indicated that your practice is primarily focused, at least in these later years, on, uh, on business immigration and employers and, and those types of matters and everything that's connected with that.
2: That's, that's right. Um, most of our clients are employers who are looking at bringing in skilled people to join them in Canada and their Canadian operations. Um, we do still see uh, individuals coming in. Uh, but most of them are are uh, generated by employers.
0: Now you've also been pretty heavily. Obviously, we we talked a little bit about how you're a frequent lecturer on immigration, and uh, you know within the Canadian Bar Association and amongst the other uh, the other various legal courses and legal um, seminar companies out there. I, I mentioned Insight many years ago. You have also um, appeared as a witness before the Parliamentary Committee on Citizenship and Immigration. Um, what was that about?
2: Well, uh, we talked about uh, I think a topic you uh, you did one of your blogs on recently with uh, uh, with Richard Curlin. Uh, we were talking mainly, but well, we we're talking about two things. we were talking about visitor visas mm-hmm. and we were talking about security. Uh, and we were talking about the mix of wanting to encourage visitors while still, maintaining a level of security, and we talked about, uh, you know, who the government should let in, and uh, more interestingly, whether the government uh, should be more closely monitoring when people leave uh, the country, and as you know, we still don't really have a system of exit control, so we know who's coming in, we don't really know when they they leave us, and this has been an old problem, it's been one here in Canada, as well as the U.S., which has tried... uh, you know some different options,
0: huh? So, what do you think's in store for us in the near future here? Do you think they're actually going to get this uh, in place?
2: Well, I, I, I think uh, that over the past few years, and I think certainly in the next years, I think we're going to move to much more of a of a North American boundary uh, with respect to immigration. Um, the Americans are going to expect that. Uh, that, that we do perhaps more than we do now uh, to secure our perimeter, and the North American perimeter will be the U.S. perimeter. Uh, that's certainly what we're working at. I think... One of, the, one of the things Donald Trump doesn't know yet, as he erects a very high wall on a southern border with Mexico, is that we've just taken the visa off, uh, visa requirement off Mexican citizens. So any Mexican uh, citizen can get on a plane and arrive anywhere in Canada. And I suppose if they wanted to go to the U.S., uh, there would be a very long border, which doesn't have any wall on it of any kind at the moment. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of like putting a big wall against one of your neighbors on one side and forgetting to put a wall on the other side of the house to keep people out. So, yeah. yeah anyway, well, I'll. Uh, it'll be it'll be interesting when when that when that light bulb turns on down in Washington.
0: Yeah, it's going to be unbelievably interesting to see how this all plays out. You know, I think uh, there, there's one, and I talked about this a little bit in my last um, episode that I released with with Carter Hoppy, but there is one. Constant within immigration, and I wonder if you can guess what that is. <laughs> change, change.
2: <laughs> Let's all say it together. Yeah, change.
0: change. And so, with a new immigration minister coming in, and uh, you know, new thoughts and direction, it's it's just when we think we've got things figured out, they they change all the rules. And and uh, I've lamented with many of my um, my other friends who practice in other areas of the law that. You know, once they get it figured out, they can just let the machine run. <laughs> but but for us, okay. once we get it figured out, they change the rules and we have to start from scratch again. So we're constantly rebuilding ourselves. But uh, that that's is the life of an immigration lawyer.
2: That's right. But that's also our value added. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I know that... Um, human resources officers and others in big companies who think that they know how our immigration system works will throw up their hands when it's changed yet again. And rather than trying to do something themselves, they will seek counsel uh, because they uh, they realize that things change so quickly and they can't keep up. That's not what they do for a living. Um, so they'll more likely more likely come and see us.
0: Yeah. So I, that
2: that's the that's the flip side of constant change. We're needed more.
0: That's a good point. And I'm also reminded of that uh, as I spoke with a good friend last night who uh, his, his wife is a permanent resident from the UK and they took their family back to the UK. But before they left, she didn't have her PR card and uh, uh, they called WestJet. Oh, I shouldn't be naming names and Identifying companies, but that's okay. I'll do it. Uh, they called WestJet and uh, WestJet said, "Oh yeah, you should be fine. Just make sure you've got your ID." And of course, they flew happily over to the UK for for vacation. And he informed me that his wife is now back there still, and he's here with his family. They came and they wouldn't let her board because obviously wow. she didn't have a PR card, and as a permanent resident, she couldn't get an ETA. So um, she is patiently waiting over the next week uh, for her travel document to come, which they said was about four or five business days. And uh, in the meantime, my my dear friend in Calgary is now trying to figure out uh, child care for his children while he goes to work and... yeah, what a mess! And it um, is, and it was WestJet who refused to board them on the plane coming back. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> so there is huge advantages to uh, yes, uh, th- those P- those HR managers that uh, um, that are wise definitely reach out to uh, to us counsel who can keep them pointed in the right direction with all these changes. And it, it's certainly
2: bad enough if uh, if somebody's spouse uh, is is caught overseas, but imagine the hysteria, as you know mark in a company where the president of the company is stuck uh, in the yes. UK, unable to board a flight. <laughs>
0: yes, absolutely. Bells,
2: bells ring
0: everywhere. Absolutely, they do. All right. Well, you know, we've talked just a little bit. I said, you know, I I, I brought up the fact that I, I was first introduced to you a, a number of years ago as you were presenting and you were already uh, one of the leaders in the field of immigration law back then. But how did you get into this this wonderful world. How did you start practicing immigration? What made you choose to do it?
2: Uh, Mark, I wish I could tell you that at uh, some point in my life, I had uh, put all the put all the facts together, looked at all the options and decided this was where to go, but it was nothing like that. It was kind of accidental. Uh, when I graduated from law school, well, when I was in law school, there was no immigration law course. I graduated in 1980 from Queens, and there was no mention of. I think I went through all of law school, and the word immigration never came up once. Uh, I think at the time there were maybe two or three or four practitioners in Toronto who did immigration work some of the time, not necessarily all of the time. People like uh, Cecil Rotenberg and Mendel Green, I think Carter Hoppy already there, and, and, and But again, they they weren't even they weren't doing it always full time, so it wasn't really a, a practice as such. Um, what happened is, after law school, I spent a couple of years as a political assistant at Queen's Park during the, uh, the Bill Davis regime, and uh, I, uh, I worked in a, in, in, a, in a ministry for a cabinet minister, but that ministry had a background in a highly uh, multicultural area, and uh, I got to know various people in that community. Uh, later on, I was involved federally in politics in Toronto in what could only be described then as a landing pad area, just full of, 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 of newcomers to Canada. Um, currently one of the most desirable and cool places to live to and live. expensive places <laughs> to live, I might say, in the city. But at the time, as I say, very much of a landing pad. And I got to know again a number of the people in the area from uh, local uh, uh, Catholic priests to the local sort of community organization people uh, and, and the local union heads and stuff. But when I, when, when I decided it was time to get serious and, and, and actually start a practice, I, uh, I started a practice with one partner up uh, on the third floor, sort of a garret of a building in mm-hmm. Midtown Toronto and would basically take anybody with any problem uh, who, who was able to make three flights of stairs. <laughs> uh, and there, there was no elevator. Uh, and uh, what I started finding was all these people I knew from, uh, from my political days uh, started coming in with immigration issues, and I, I really didn't, d- didn't focus on the fact that, that these issues existed. And I really didn't know how to deal with them at the time, and I basically kept picking up the phone and calling people in Ottawa uh-huh. in the ministry, saying, I have a problem, can you fix it, And or what do I do? Uh, and those were different days when you could actually get through to people, and people... Uh, were helpful and it was a much smaller uh, organization. And you, you know what, Peter, uh, and people uh, people actually uh, you know did help me out. And eventually, I realized that I just couldn't do this forever, and mm-hmm. I actually had to learn how to do this myself. So I got involved in uh, the practice of immigration law. Went to lectures at the uh, Canadian Bar Association, Ontario Bar Association, and eventually got uh, fully into uh, immigration. Decided that's really mm-hmm. all I wanted or needed to do. Huh. but uh, as you can imagine, uh, I wasn't being hired by top employers at the time yes. <laughs> it was it was anybody and everybody with an immigration problem who walked through the door so uh, I saw everybody from uh, well a lot of construction workers at the time who had uh, who had been brought into the country by Various consultants and others uh, as fake refugees, but had stayed in the country for years and were very vital to uh, uh, the construction industry. the The industry def- definitely, definitely wanted to keep these people in Canada. Uh, there were um, all kinds of other people from. Uh, 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 strippers to <laughs> some athletes. Uh, I had a very notable uh, Irish terrorist or two, uh, who m- members of the IRA, and and, and I had uh, a large practice of of Afghans. Uh, they were many of them were sort of Afghan uh, rebels who had been. Uh, shooting down uh, uh, Russian planes at the, when the Russians occupied Afghanistan and huh. and these uh, is these the these Islamic uh, uh, libertarians were were heroes at the time in Canada and the United States. <laughs> we were very enthused about uh, about making them refugees and keeping them in the country. As a result, oh,
1: wow.
2: so uh, there was a, 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 just a variety of all kinds of 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 characters. Uh, and, uh, and eventually, um, you know, my practice did evolve to, to dealing largely with employers who really needed skilled people and in helping industry associations who were short on talent, uh, and, and really needed to, to move the markers on, on immigration in Canada to make sure that they, you know, they got the right people into the country. So it, it has evolved over the years, but I, th- it may have been more fun in the early days, Mark.
0: Yeah. And I agree, Peter, because when I, even when I started, you know, my first introduction was, was working as a summer student on the border. And, Mm -hmm. um, and then when I went to law school, um, I had made some connections with the hearings officers downtown in Calgary. And I worked as a pro bono student with them when I was going through law school. And Mm -hmm. I loved it because, you know, I knew people inside and I understood kind of how they thought and, and their, their position. And it's, it's interesting. Um, when I first started, it was very similar to you. I'd run into an issue and I'd be like, hmm, I don't know how to deal with this. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I would call my friend who is, you know, one of the hearings officers or someone (laughs) on the border or, you know, the local uh, enforcement officer. And they would say, well, here's what you do. Here's how we approach it from our perspective. And I'm like, great. And you couldn't get better insight than that, you know, to know exactly how the the immigration department is going to deal with an issue. And uh, of course, you know, when you... Are the one guy at, at your firm who has even a little bit of, of knowledge? Well, th- you're the man. <laughs> and you're so, the
2: guy who's going to get it all. Yeah, right?
0: exactly. And and well, I really really enjoyed it. And uh, over the last while, it's been um, an interesting shift where they've closed off the lines of communications and made it more and more difficult. And even even old colleagues and friends who are still <clears throat> excuse me still within the department i 'm really reluctant to reach out to them because i don 't want to put them in a difficult a difficult position, and so um, it, it's it 's changed considerably to to uh, it 's definitely not as fun as it used to be
2: <laughs> it, it's it 's not as much fun and, and uh, you can 't get through to people who can make the difference themselves. I mean we used to have managers of immigration offices in Toronto, and there used to be about four offices in Toronto you could actually get through to the manager and say look I have a really great case of a person who's done extraordinary things in Canada but he is out of status now and he's going to get deported and it's all a mistake and bad things happened and I can get you proof of all his background and all the people supporting him and and that manager could turn around and say yeah I'm I'm going to you know give him a permit to to stay and give him time to, to sort out his his uh, his problems and I mean, you can, you can still make these type of applications, but they go through a big bureaucracy, and you just can't pick up the phone with a decision maker. And the decision makers don't want to be decision makers anymore. Yes, they, yeah. they just, they're part of a process. So it's more bureaucratized, uh, and uh, it's a much bigger system, and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's harder to find people who are willing to make a difference in that system.
0: Hmm, yeah. Yeah, they transition in and out pretty quick, too, from those portfolios. Sure.
2: But, Mark, your experience of knowing what is being looked at on the other side of the line I think is so important because I think one thing lawyers and others tend to overlook sometimes when doing these fabulous 10-page submissions addressed <laughs> to, to to the border, to some poor person at the border who's got a lineup of cars or someone at the airport who's got, you know, Three planes from the Middle East have just arrived with 350 passengers, and they're all waiting at the immigration line. Uh, I mean, to know what they're looking for uh, and what is meaningful for them is really important. And you know, you want to get through the 11 pages, reduce it to one page, and address what you think their concerns would be. Like, obviously, hit the points in the law, which you have to hit, but also, you know, address what what you think that they're looking for.
0: Yeah.
2: And I think that's so much more important than than pages and pages of whereas, therefore, gobbledygook, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> which which nobody wants to read, no. but which uh, I guess some of our colleagues may think uh, might impress their clients when exactly. they're carrying these, these large tomes with them at the airport.
0: Yeah, that's exactly correct. Yeah. And yeah, most officers I know, they, they look at council submission letters and you know, politely set those aside, right. <laughs> and then right. look at the documents themselves. And so it's it's yeah, it's definitely uh, you you want to make your point quick and and fast, yeah. and uh, try not to uh, to take up their time and make their job as easy as possible. That's for sure, right? Well, this is, you know, we could have a whole podcast, a, a whole separate episode just talking about, uh, you know, the department and changes and, and ports of entry. But I did want you to cover one topic that is, it's right. somewhat of a neglected area, I think, within the world of permanent residence. And it I, is. and I think, you know, when we're advising our clients, um, sometimes we overlook it. And that's the category of self-employed. Now, in my uh, the episode, it will be season two, episode two with Carter Hoppy. We talked about the investor program and the entrepreneur program, which, to a large extent, doesn't exist in Canada for the most part as of two thousand eleven. But um, but this is the one last you know the last uh, stand, I guess, in terms of these these types of um, uh, well, it doesn't quite fit in with immigrant uh, with with investors and entrepreneurs. But it's it's a standalone uh, category of self employed. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about this? You know who is covered. You know who could possibly fit within yeah. this category of self-employed.
2: Well, you're absolutely right, Mark. It is kind of a uh, lonely remnant of what used to be a comprehensive business immigration program in Canada. It used to be investors, entrepreneurs, and quote the self-employed. Uh, investors federally are gone. Uh, entrepreneurs uh, federally are gone, at least for the time being. And most people forget, however, that the self-employed uh, are still there uh, and that there are still sections of the Act and the regulations which set up this, this particular lonesome category. Um, I, I guess the first thing to say about the self-employed is that if you just use the term self-employed, you're going to get the wrong impression of this particular program. It is not about people who are self-employed in any commercial area. Uh, it's not about somebody who's gonna run their own store uh, or somebody who is maybe a management consultant who is going to be self-employed in, in, in or, or people self-employed in professions, at least not under the federal program. It's none of those people who might just carry on through life in a self-employment category. It's very specific. It is about three different types of people. It is about Artists, people in the cultural field, it's about those in the athletic field, uh, and oddly enough, as an add-on, uh, it's about uh, people who are owners and managers of farms. Um, but let's put the <laughs> let's put the farms aside for a minute. It's kind of the outlier. Um, so. Artists and athletes, well, first of all, why do you need to have a program for them? And I think there's there's two reasons. One, overwhelmingly, our skilled immigrant program, which brings in about, what, 60% of the immigrants we bring in every year, it is really geared to people who are coming to Canada to be employed 40 hours a week in regular jobs. Uh, and it involves employers who want to hire those people, it involves their skill sets, et cetera, to do those kind of jobs. But people in the, uh, the athletic field, people in the arts uh, and cultural fields, they don't have those kind of jobs. Uh, typically, they have jobs where they go from contract to contract or engagement to engagement, performance to performance. You know, they're hired to do, uh, you know, an actor may be hired to do a show for a period of three months and then move on to do something else, an athlete, uh, maybe on different uh, teams. Um, so these are not jobs for life. Uh, no, nobody in, in these fields, you know, gets a gold watch at the end of <laughs> their period of time yeah. with one employer. So I think it's important to understand that there, that, that people in these industries, in these fields, don't fit under the general skilled worker categories that 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 really dominate our, our economic immigrant area. And then there's another reason that we need this this area and that is we want athletes and artists who do make a contribution to the country. And this is a program which recognizes that and which 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 allows such people to come into the country. Hmm. Um, so so, I, you know, those are the two reasons that the self-employed area is there and why, you know, and why it's sort of narrow with respect to to these areas.
0: Um, so, now let me... Peter, can yeah, I jump in just for one second here? Yeah, sure. So, when we're talking about athletes, now we think, you know, often they're obviously, uh, you know, the, their play is, is governed by a season and um yeah. the the one that I've had experience with is the cFL obviously. Mm-hmm. so so you're talking even for um, a CFL player, you know a, an elite athlete at that level whose season is quite short in the grand scheme of things, um, they would be a potential candidate for this type of uh a program?
2: yeah, i think I think those are the easier uh candidates, the most obvious ones, those who uh in 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 the athletic field those who actually are athletes and who are performing at, a, a, say, a professional or a very Mm -hmm. high amateur levels, uh, international competitions, et cetera, et cetera. Those, I mean, unless they're at the end, clearly at the end of their careers uh, and and are not moving on to other teams or are done with their playing days, um, they're they're the more obvious ones. Um, And similarly, in the cultural field, um, the actors, the directors, uh, they're the ones who are more obvious as well. Um, they're more upfront, they're what I call sort of the, uh, um, the frontline people in, in those fields. But the important thing about this category is that it also recognizes the backstage people as well as the front stage people in both athletics and uh, in, in, in culture. So in the athletic area, a coach, a full-time coach in in an athletic field uh, who who uh, who has opportunities he thinks, he or she thinks in Canada might be, uh, might certainly come under this category. Um, Similarly in the cultural field, uh, people in production, uh, uh, people in management of theater uh, who come and go and deal with different productions, um, people who produce um, theater uh, productions or films, um, these are all people who are not front fr- front and center, as actors and hockey players are, but they are people who are part of the industries, and they have to be considered as well, and, and I think it's very important to know that, because the others are more obvious, the, you know, the athlete, the, the actual player, and the actor, they're obvious. Hmm. But, 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 but let me, you know, the, let me give you a little, a, a, a brief synopsis, maybe it'll, you know, it, it'll further the conversation as well as to what the, the regulations, as well as some of the direction provided by the department say sure. about the self-employed. The self-employed applicant is one who has relevant experience of at least two years in the last five before making an application to, uh, for permanent residence. So, someone with a background, with experience, and it is someone with the intention and ability to be self-employed in his or her field in Canada, and someone who intends to make a significant uh, contribution in their field. And the fields are the cultural field, the athletic field, or, as I said before, in farm management. Um, so we've talked about the fact that in the, in the cultural and athletic area, there's the front, the front stage and the backstage people who are, who are included as, as, as self-employed. But then I think, you know, the question, the first question comes up, once you've established the person fits into the cultural or athletic category, then you want to look at the person's experience. Like, wh- what is it about this person that suggests that they have a background in this? Again, sometimes it's obvious, sometimes they're well-known people in their field. If they're not, and those are the more difficult ones, uh, then you have to compile you know, a bio, a dossier, a background for these people. You might do it from websites. You might do it in letters of reference. You know, we are, uh, you know, a, a, someone from the film community in France might say this is one of our leading lights in the area of production. They've done areas in this. They've done stuff here. Uh, they are really highly regarded. Um, what work have they done? I mean, list of productions. If you've been involved either as an actor in production, what, what, is, what are the list of those productions? Show us that you've been employed in these areas. Show us that you've done it. Show us that you've made a living in it because we all know it's easy to make contributions at an amateur level, but did you make a living out of this? And once you establish you made a living out of this for at least two out of five of the last years, then the next question is, well, that's nice that you made a living out of that where you're coming from, but why do you think you could do that as well in Canada? Why do you think you could make a living at this in Canada? And that's when it gets a little difficult, because some things do not adapt or transport very well to Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may be heavily involved in a sport uh, in Europe or abroad, which is not played in Canada. <laughs> Cricket so or something. So why, like why, mm-hmm. why why would you think here why would you think you could make a living here? You may be involved in foreign language productions, uh, and you may have been very active in the Bulgarian film industry uh, and and done good Bulgarian film productions. But does that mean uh, that you're going to find work in Canada? Um, and and if so, why do you think so? Uh, I mean, there are people who are uh, who have 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 worked in the cultural areas in in the film industry or the theater industry and they can transport that Uh, yes i've uh, i've been involved in italian film production but it's well known in the united states and canada and in europe and by the way you know there are a number of italian uh, uh, productions here there's italian uh, tv stations there's italian radio uh, and and i would be involved in that etc etc so uh, you know The fact you've done it abroad doesn't mean you can't do it here, but you have to explain how it is that you can bring your talents and make it, earn a living for you in Canada. Hmm. So I think, you know, that's very important to do. Uh, And of course that raises the question, well, okay, you've proven to me that you've been involved and made a living in your industry back home. How are you going to prove that about Canada? And again, unless it's obvious, I've been signed by an NHL hockey team. That would be obvious if it's hockey. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if it's not that obvious, then you're going to have to find letters. You're going to have to show potential contracts. You're going to have to have people saying, you know, I would hire this person for my production. I would hire this person as a coach uh, in a in a moment if he or she were a permanent resident of Canada. I've already booked a series of things with this person. I'm anxious that they start with me soon. This person actually worked for us while he or she was in China, and they did work for us here in Canada. And we'd be very happy if he if he moved and we, we were able to bring him here with us. This person's work, which was done abroad, was shown here in Canada and received exhibition at these art galleries. and. Uh, a number of people buy their work in Canada if they're artists. So these are all ways of showing that this person is known and can make a living in Canada where it might not be obvious to an immigration officer, a visa officer who's never heard of the person. So that's really the hardest part of this, is working with someone who is not a known name and and putting together a background showing that they've been successful in their field, culturally, athletically abroad, and that they're likely to be successful and can make a living here doing the same thing or similar things. Does that mean the person has to come here and do all their work out of Canada? No. I mean, if you're an opera singer, it's understood that you're going to have engagements around the world. If you're a trainer, you may do training in your field for various teams all over the world. So you don't have to earn your living just from Canadian sources. You can still say, hey, I have, uh, you know, people around the world are still going to give me contracts. That's going to be part of my income. But if none of it is Canadian sourced income, if none of it involves doing stuff in Canada, you're going to have a problem. And you have a problem for two reasons if you want to become a Canadian permanent resident, you've got to have an intention to, to live and be in Canada. And if you're going to live in Hollywood or in Lake Como in Italy and in your old estate and never come to Canada except for the occasional engagement, you're not really coming to Canada. And you're not really asking to move here, to live here. And the second thing is you're not making a contribution and part of the definition of a self-employed, as we talked about, is that you're going to make a contribution in the cultural or, or athletic area. And if you're never going to come here except for one show or two you're doing, well, you know, you're not, you're not necessarily going to be making a contribution. So you don't want to go overboard in saying you've got all these great engagements around the world. You really don't need any money coming out of any Canadian sources. You, mm. you, you, do, you do need some.
0: Hmm. Interesting.
2: Um, and, and keep in mind also that there, that a number of the provinces in the federal government do uh, provide uh, Canadian productions, and I'm thinking mainly of the film industry, with certain credits and tax credits, uh, if the production is considered in content to be Canadian, which means there's a certain number of Canadians who are involved in the production. So some of these productions want to go out of their way to hire Canadian permanent residents. And there are people looking for work in California who yes, would yes. love to do these, but they're not going to get any points for the Canadian production. So they've been they've been told too many times, love to have you, but we're really looking for a Canadian to get some extra points. They want to become Canadian so they can compete for those jobs in Canada. They don't really want to come here. Be aware of those beware there and 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 of course even if they're fortunate enough to get permanent residence if they're not here enough they're going to lose it they're not going to fulfill the residency requirement and ultimately five years down the road they're going to lose their permanent residence so you know be beware of 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 those types as as well so that's sort of a little bit of background um a number of people say well do i need assets and 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 they do ask in your application for assets what are you bringing in terms of, of, of cash and assets to, to the country? And, and the question is, well, how much do I need? And the answer, well, it depends what you're getting into. Uh, and it depends how soon they think you're going to be able to get on your feet. Uh, you know, if you think, well, I, I don't have a lot of things now, but coming down the road in a year or so, I see myself getting quite busy. They're going to say, well, what are you going to do for the first year? Show me, show me some assets. If you already have all these contracts lined up from day one, and you're clearly going to be doing well well assets aren't important because you you clearly are going to earn a living so so that's the answer on sort of how much money do i need and i and i, and I guess there's one other uh, this is quite a subjective area mark and, and we we talked about subjectivity not being part of the immigration system a lot but you know everything's you know we have point systems a computer you know will look at the, we'll, we'll assess and, and grind the points, mm-hmm. and it's based on an algorithm, and nobody actually sees the individual if they're coming as economic immigrants, but this is a subjective area where somebody has to actually make decisions about experience, likelihood of success, contribution to Canada. And when they're looking at contribution to Canada, well, what does that mean? Do, you know, does that mean if you're a trainer, you can only train Olympic athletes? Does that mean if you're an athlete, you have to be on a professional team? And the answer is no, not exactly. <clears throat> you don't have to be the best athlete or the best trainer in the world. Well, you have to make difference. And you know, if you're saying, well, I'm going to be, uh, a, a peewee hockey coach for a number of hockey teams and they're going to give, they're all going to give me a little bit of money to, to do this. Well, it's not going to make a huge difference. We've got a lot of peewee hockey coaches in the country yes. <laughs> and yes. it's, it's not a great contribution to athletics. However, if you have experience, uh, in fencing and you're coming to, uh, Alberta to uh, teach fencing in Calgary and you are going to be really kind of a, a star in your field in an area which is not yet terribly popular and where are probably not many Canadians teaching fencing, but you've taught fencing at universities in Eastern Europe and, and are reasonably well-known there, well, that kind of a person could make a difference, uh, even if they might not reach the Olympic levels or, or, or any professional levels. So you know, a person, a music teacher, uh, in a, a a pretty good music teacher in a small town, is going to be worth more than a hockey coach in a big city. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so uh, that's part of the analysis too of whether you're going to make a a significant or the the, the applicant's going to make a significant contribution to Canada. Mm-hmm. So so very. A lot of subjectivity in this, and a lot of letters and uh, opinions from people who are in the field in Canada, who say, "Look, I've been in this field for a long time. This person's great. This will be good for, you know, my people, my kids, my theater production. This person will do well." That that that's what you're really looking for.
0: And that makes a lot of sense, Peter. You know, as you're, and I know the other <laughs> lawyers that are listening to this. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I'm running down my long lists of clients and people that I've acted for over the years. And, yeah. you know, I, I can see now how this potentially could be a very good possibility for some clients that I have right now that are exploring their options, as mm-hmm. well as other ones that maybe, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe have uh, come in through other means. Um, you know, I've, I've done, you know, CFL players that have found mm-hmm. their true love in Canada, and we seem to mm-hmm. always go through the spousal route. Or, mm-hmm. uh, excuse me, musicians and, uh, uh, you know, even disc jockeys. And, and uh, I've got a client right now that I think would be a perfect fit. Now he's engaged to a Canadian, and so I think uh, probably the spousal is the that. easier route. But at yeah. the end of the day, it's this has really opened my eyes to the possibilities. And, you know, when you do have at least one program here where there's a there there's an opportunity for us to do our job and to advocate on behalf of our client and to really showcase who they are um these are the kinds of applications that we live for so uh yeah this is great this has been a real a real eye opener
2: yeah it's it's one that that actually has to get the mental juices running and it's not one that uh is just an administrative compilation of, of uh, you know fill in the blanks. Yeah, under the a, check boxes on the checklist. Point. No, this this requires a little bit of a little bit of thought, and and it sometimes involves speaking uh, to those individuals who want to write letters and say things on behalf of the applicant, and they'll call you and say well, what do you want me to say uh,
0: yes yeah well <laughs> I can't say, write it I'll, for you but here's what we're looking for mm-hmm. I
2: want you to say this is an impressive person that they do really good things in their field be it athletics or culture and that they could really do good things here and tell us what those things would be and by the way if you want to retain them for, for for various engagements please say so
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, as that's important um, so so that's um, you know, I guess that's uh, that's two out of the three uh, categories of the self-employed, hmm. and with, with
0: the maybe, ones I certainly see more often. Yeah, for sure, I can see that. Now, is with this, uh, I, there, there's also a point system, right? There is a point system. You're right. And, and so uh, does it, does that even factor in? You know, how does it <laughs> how does it work I, into the mix?
2: I, when it comes to when, in, in, when entrepreneurs were, were still being processed and now uh, with the self-employed still there, I found that the only time there was ever reference in a decision to the point system was was, was when there was a refusal. <laughs> Otherwise, the point system would never be mentioned uh, because they like to hang their hats on something uh, more objective uh, or that seems less subjective let's put it that way and the point system uh, so they say well i only gave him two points or for this and only five for this didn't get enough points there is a point system it's a very uh it, it, it's if you're experienced in your field it's a very po- easy point system to get around because you you can get up to 100 points you only need 35 points to pass And if you have a full five years experience, you need a minimum of two, but if you've had five years experience in a cultural athletic area or farm management, um, you get the full 35 points in that category and you're done. That's it, you've got your 35 points. and you don't have to prove your education and you don't have to prove your English language skills.
0: And that's the huge part, I think, too, Peter. Like when I look at that, if you've got the experience, usually it's, it's people, you know, they lose all their age points by the time they accumulate the, the experience. And, and, uh, and then some people from some countries, you know, right. English is an issue and it's a barrier. But it's right. not the case for this one.
2: Right. right. No, I agree. Absolutely. I mean, as you know, the English tests that skilled workers now have to take are very hard. Uh, I mean, you know, they, uh, part of it, they, they may have to comment on an editorial from The Economist and say, please rep- tell us what this uh, the, the, this this uh, this person thinks and please respond in 250 words. <laughs> I mean, that's not an easy thing to do. You don't have to, to take an English test, uh, and you don't need to show uh, uh, your, your education if you've already gotten five years of experience in your full 35 points. However, there is a caution. Mm-hmm. If a person is coming to participate in a cultural field, which clearly requires some knowledge of English, whether it's stage managing or production or direction, whatever, and if the visa officer feels that you don't speak English very well or at all, they're gonna find it difficult to see how you're gonna make a living and how you're gonna establish yourself in your field in Canada, and of course, establishment is part of the test. So it, it's kind of a backdoor to saying you're not going to establish yourself because you don't speak English. Uh, so if it's important, if the person does speak English well, I might even encourage them to take the English test, just to show that you know, just to show off and essentially say you know, and my English is great too, just in case you have any doubts about mm, that. Interesting. And if and and if the area requires, you know. You know, if a person took if a person's in stage management and did deg- a degree in direction and stage management at a college abroad that's a good thing to add so i would include uh, that degree even if i don't have to get points from from uh, from education so these are these are things that support a person's likelihood of success in establishment in canada and and if if they got it use it but if they don't have it uh, you may get away with stuff that you can't get away with for skilled worker type of immigrants.
0: That's great insight. So now we have the last category that's kind of the true outlier. <laughs> All right, what are we gonna do with these these people? Okay, let's just throw them into self-employed. So we're talking about our farm managers.
2: Our farm managers. Mark, as I understand it, uh, there are uh, self-styled consultants in all kinds of parts of the world who tell their local farmers who own little plots of land in various countries in the world that they're eligible to apply for immigration to Canada if they just pay the consultants because they found a way for them to get in. Uh They can come in as self-employed farmers. But overwhelmingly, those kind of cases will get rejected. Because we're not talking about eligibility, we're not talking about farmers with five or six acres uh, somewhere in uh, Asia or Africa, uh, a very small operation growing uh, growing something that is not grown in Canada or raising a few animals.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: What we're talking about are very sophisticated farms in Canada Uh, Very high acreage, very high price per acre, farms in Saskatchewan, Alberta, rural Ontario, wherever that are going to probably cost overall, you know, certainly over a million dollars and probably several millions of dollars to purchase, highly sophisticated farm machinery, large numbers of animals or a sophisticated crop production, understanding technology, understanding high-tech issues. Um, this is, so this is what they're looking for in, uh, a farm manager. They're looking for a person who has the ability, wherewithal experience and money to be able to purchase and manage a sophisticated Canadian farm. So, you know, yeah, I would imagine there, you know, if you run a big farm in Montana, you can run a big farm in Alberta uh but it doesn't um, doesn't translate as well uh, if, if you're a small- time farmer somewhere in uh, far away from Canada and, and and want to establish here So it's a very small very niche area uh, I have to tell you I, I I don't see them coming into my office here in downtown Toronto really
0: <laughs>
2: uh, <laughs> You'll be surprised. Yeah. Uh, but I must say, I have had relatives call me to say, you know, my uh, my brother runs a, a little farm in Bangladesh. What about it? He's mm-hmm. self employed. And I explain what the rules are. So, uh, and that, that ends the conversation quickly. But I understand there are a lot of applications come to offices, uh, visa offices that we have in India and, and Bangladesh, Pakistan, some Africa, uh, visa offices in, in, in Africa. A lot of Uh, Of these applications come in, uh, I guess these uh, consultants really push this, um, and I imagine that they're almost all refused. Hmm. Um, So now, there are some provinces which, well, this is the federal program. I've been talking about the federal self-employed program, and it specifically excludes any province that wants to get into the self-employed area. Uh, And there is one province uh, that has a completely different definition of self-employed, and that would be Quebec. And as you know, Quebec runs a parallel immigration system essentially to the federal system. It defines self-employed quite differently. Uh, It's not about um, necessarily about artists and athletes. It it is often about professionals, accountants, lawyers, others who establish their own uh, professional offices. Uh, who intend, of course, to live in Quebec, presumably who speak uh, French. That would be a major issue there. But that's different. I don't want to get into that, uh, but that's Quebec, and that's a different definition of self-employed. And I think, Mark, uh, there is a separate provincial uh, farm Mm -hmm. ownership program in Alberta.
0: (laughs) There is. And, you know, when I speak with the, uh, the program manager every once in a while, I always ask him, so... What does the farm uh, you know what does what the farming category look like, and the self employed farmer and he says, "Well, I think we had maybe one last year, um, <laughs> maybe two maximum, so this is not um, one of those programs that is oversubscribed by any means
2: <laughs> well, the, the good news is they might get processed very quickly <laughs>
0: that <laughs> if, is true
2: if they, if they have a successful application
0: you know and Peter that's a good question. I'm glad that, that you brought that up. Processing times is like when I you, obviously you go on the Internet and there's nothing like I can't find a uh, listed processing times for self-employed applications. Yeah. Do you have any yes. idea how long it takes for, for one of these to go through?
2: You know, a great question. And it is um, one of the real problems I have in terms of advising people in this area now. Uh, some of the websites do contain information. I, I don't remember which. Maybe the, the site uh, our, our, our UK. Office. Somebody is talking about 55 months. Oh my! And indeed, there was a time when some of these did take years—three, four, five years. Uh, we're all over the map these days with these. Uh, I, I think because it's such a sort of a niche area, I'm, I'm not sure if there are people who are specialized in the field who who who, who these applications go to, uh, or or whether it's just a question of whether it lands on somebody's desk. Uh, who's got a big pile or a small pile? I don't know. Um, we recently did one obvious one. It was uh, it was an NHL hockey player, and it was done in about seven or eight months. Yeah, yeah. From beginning to end, maybe even less than that, if I remember correctly. Right. We've done some others that were not so obvious. That may have been just over a year, mm-hmm. year and a half. Um, I'm telling people who have a decent application. Uh, not necessarily the professional hockey players or professional actors, um, that it's the luck of the draw, but there's uh, maybe a 60 to 70% chance it'll be done in 12 months.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then there's about a 30% chance it'll be done faster or much slower. Yes, yeah. And just who knows? It it really is not organized well, and and it's just very hard to say. Which means people who are planning their lives
0: yeah, it's hard obviously
2: um, you know have a lot of difficulty with this. Um, now, if people are here as temporary foreign exactly. workers, be, yeah. because they're involved in production of, of of a play, or or if they're involved in a hockey team and they're you know Swedish nationals playing hockey here, whatever. Uh, that's fine. They can just carry on with their temporary work permits. Um, Although, bringing me to another point, when does a person stop being self-employed and stop being an employee? And and you mentioned uh, a CFL player. Well, is a CFL player with a year-long contract, and that's all he does, play football under that contract, is that person self-employed or is that person employed?
0: (laughs) Well, I know they get open work permits to work in the off-season as well. So, um, they you know they they work in other industries and uh, you know when they're when they 're not playing and that 's kind of one of the draws is they have the ability to do that because yeah. often the c f l salary over that short period of time when you stretch it out over the course of a year is not uh yeah. you know may or may not be a significant salary so right.
2: um well the the n h l ones are yes they
0: are there's no no question <laughs> and, uh, about that and they
2: are year round contracts uh pretty much so uh, you know, if the person can only play uh, for one particular NHL hockey team, then the question in, in my mind uh, in the most recent case was well, am I really dealing with someone under the point system who should be assessed as a skilled worker, uh, subject yes. to a full time job? And I didn't want to go that route yeah. because the individual was a Russian speaker and the English wasn't that great.
0: Right. Yes. <laughs> so yep. I didn't want. And, yep.
2: and God knows, no hockey player, it, it, a big star, is going to sit down to write the English test for four hours. <laughs> you know, good luck with that. Uh, so,
0: yeah, we'll stick so, with self-employed. Hey.
2: <laughs> so we stuck with self-employed, but we actually had to bring forward other sources of revenue. So do you do you know advertising? Do you do you do yeah. uh, uh, promos for, for companies and get money for Yes, we do. You have an agent who takes part of your take. Huh. Yes, Endorsements. I do. You have a professional company uh, where some of the money goes through. Uh, yes, I do. So we looked at all those different areas uh, and said, you know, there's more than one component here of this person's life, although obviously most of the money is coming from yeah. uh, from the hockey team. Mm, yeah. uh, but there are other components of an even an NHLer's life and therefore he is self-employed at least that's the conclusion we came to and we wanted to come to and it worked it worked
0: Yeah, that's yeah. great oh, that's that's really really awesome insight yeah well we've done a pretty good job of cut canvassing this area I, I really appreciate the insight that you've shared and but you know before we kind of wrap things up here is there anything else that we haven't covered to this stage that you think would be useful uh, for our listeners under this topic
2: Um. I don't think so. I think I, I, I think we did cover everything. I think you asked me all sorts of good questions. So I don't think I've got it. Any- <laughs> well, you had all got sorts got of good left. answers,
0: that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you've got this, uh, this. Actor uh, from the US who who's really interested in coming to Canada seriously because they've heard so yeah. many wonderful things about us and the political climate there is such that they're mm-hmm. thinking, hmm, I would actually rather move to Canada. Right. And they say, Oh, I heard this awesome podcast with this guest on there by the name of Peter Rakai. How do I get a hold of him? What what would I tell them, Peter? What's the best way I to reach much- you?
2: Peter at mobilitylaw, one word, dot com, is, is how you get a hold of me.
0: Okay, so email is uh, the best way.
2: That's my email. Um, my Our office number is 416-960-8876. Okay. So Either way, it's fine. Okay,
0: perfect. Yeah. So I'll put a link to both of those in the show notes of the podcast. And uh, yeah, this has just been really enlightening. It's not an area that I have um, had experience with in the past, but hmm. it's definitely one that I'm feeling a little bit more more comfortable thinking about in the future for, for clients who fit within this. Um, who knows, Alberta does have a fair amount of agriculture, especially in my area, and there may be some opportunities there that I hadn't really considered before. So, hmm. you know, one of the reasons that I... The the selfish reasons that I bring all these awesome guests like you on, Peter, is I learn just a ton and I get a ton of insight myself. And uh, so I really appreciate everything that you've shared and the insight and and just, yeah, you did a phenomenal job.
2: Well, it was fun doing this and it was great talking to you, Mark.
0: Excellent. And thank you very much. You bet. All right. Well, we'll you take care and I'm sure our paths will cross again. Thanks, Mark. Okay. Well, that was awesome. Peter did a fantastic job and uh you know the insight that he shared and just I have a much better understanding myself even of how this program could actually work. And when you think about the fact that it's not just the, the elite professional athlete or just the you know, the, the uh the, the, the star actor that can qualify for this but sometimes the supporting cast it opens up the possibilities and in a world where everything is so heavily dominated by by language and work experience and full-time jobs and and all of these things when you're trying to immigrate to Canada this opens up a real unique uh, opportunity for people that are in those industries and of course without you know leaving off the fact that um, uh, farm managers also also qualify. And so it was great to listen to Peter's insight to, to hear about the practical experiences. And as I indicated in the podcast, I've already have, you know, a couple clients that I'm thinking about that could potentially benefit from this. So if you have, uh, you know, if you yourself as an athlete or, um, or a, uh, an actor or a musician or someone in the arts, uh, this is something that you definitely want to consider. So thanks so much to Peter Rakai who joined me on the, uh, on the uh, episode four here of the Canadian immigration podcast, just an awesome job. And Peter and I spent some time after the call, even just uh, talking about immigration and the changes and, and um, uh, just even what, you know, how, how much it's changed over the last few years as, uh, as an immigration lawyer, um, the interaction that we have with the government and the challenges and just the, the never ending change and, and that seems to be the 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 one thought the one idea that has permeated all of my podcasts is how much change there is and with a new immigration minister Hussein, that is uh, that is now uh, over that portfolio we'll have to see once again how uh, how his background and and his uh, vision plays out when it comes to the development of future immigration policy in Canada. I want to express thanks, as I always do, and I tend to ramble on a little bit about this, but thanks so much for listening. Um, I was talking with Peter just about the the, the time that it takes to actually generate these little podcasts, and I'm somewhat of a perfectionist, and so even when I uh, post the... the audio on the com website uh, it takes quite a bit of time to just make sure that the guest is properly presented. You know, there's no grammatical errors, and I'm sure there are in, in, in the, the copy that I produce and, and write when I'm trying to describe the episode. Um, but it takes quite a bit of work to, to find the pictures and those kinds of things. And so, you know, the best thanks that I could ever get is is a referral to other people. And if you like it, uh, to leave a rating within iTunes, um, that's the best thanks in the world that I could get is that people are actually listening to it. So hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, and uh, we'll see what the future holds for future ones as I'm reaching out to other people to, uh, to have them join me uh, on the podcast as well. I wish you all the best, everyone, as you navigate this crazy world of Canadian immigration law, policy, and practice. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, your trusted source for information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. If you would like to contribute a question for future podcasts or wish to set up a legal consultation with Mark, please visit
2: www.ht-llp.com.
1: oh Canada greatest country in the world we want to share the richness of your soil this place I here on the Canadian immigration.